Okay, let's jump in. Father, uh, thank you so much for what you're doing here at our church. And week by week, you're teaching us what does it mean to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers. And so we come today to learn a little bit more about what that means. And as we come to some of your most important teaching in all your word, uh, what it means to be a Christ uh, follower, what it means to be set free, uh, to be a Christ follower. We pray that you would come and be our teacher now. Give me great freedom, I pray, as I teach, Lord. And I pray that you give us all ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us individually and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Our story starts today in the fall of the year. It's, it's uh, late September, it's early October. And uh, it's time for the Feast of Pab- uh, Tabernacles. And uh, as we've been learning the last few weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the most important events in the annual calendar in the life of Israel. It's one of the three big major week-long feasts. It's a time when the, the, the whole nation sets aside a week to remember how God took care of them in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt and how he provided manna for them to eat, and how he provided water from the rock when they ran out of water, how he provided uh, the, the cloud by day and the, uh, the, the pillar of fire by night to be their light and to lead them. And so for one week they gather, and there's all kinds of uh, pilgrims, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of pilgrims flood to Jerusalem for this, uh, this event every year. The city is packed, and there's certain uh, ceremonies they go through. Like, for example, they, they actually build these little lean-to huts with branches and all, and they camp out in their, their courtyards or out in the countryside to remind them of the time of how God had provided for them in the wilderness. And they also, there's other ceremonies, like one we talked about a couple weeks ago, was every day during the seven days, the priests, they take these golden pitchers. They lead a procession down to the pool of Siloam. They fill the pitchers up with water. They bring them back. They're all singing psalms, and they're watching through the streets, this big parade. They come to the huge, massive temple courtyard. They, they take it to the tremendous altar there. They pour the water over the altar to remind them of how God brought them water from the rock. Another ceremony that takes place that, that week is the celebration of lights. And they celebrate how God is their light and how in the wilderness that he was this, this pillar of fire that led them by, by night. And so what they do is in the, in the temple courts, in the court of the women, which is a very large court that Jewish women could go into, men could go to, but it's the place where women could go. It's just called the court of the women. And in this huge court, the, the priests would put these, they'd build these four huge towers uh, and on top of the towers, they would put these tremendous bowls and then fill them with olive oil. And then they would take, uh, the priests would take their old undergarments, uh, whatever, and, uh, and they would turn them into these huge wicks. And then they would put, the, they'd make these wicks of their linen undergarments and, and they would put them in these huge bowls and they would climb over the ladders and fill the bowls with the oil. And then at nighttime, remember, there's no natural electricity. There's no lighting at night. They, they, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light these wicks, and the light would reflect off of the 15-story temple building and out into the limestone walls and, and, and the yellow limestone houses and the whole city. Ancient rabbis would tell us that the whole city would be lit up with the light of this, and they'd celebrate how God was their light. And, and so it's into this courtyard that Jesus marches into the court of the women. And, and, in the, in this, and during this Feast of Tabernacles, he speaks those powerful words that will never be forgotten throughout time or eternity. Today we continue our series. And for those of you who are brand new, this series is called Revealed. You can see it on the walls. 
It's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest companions and friends, a man by the name of John, who actually wrote a story of the life and teaching of Jesus. It's in the New Testament called the Gospel of John. And so we're actually in the second mini-series in Revealed, and it's called Conflict and Crisis. You see it there in your front page of your note sheet, chapters 5 through 12. And today we come to chapter 8. And so if you take your Bibles and turn there, let me set the scene. The scene is the Feast of Tabernacles. This starts in chapter 7. It goes all the way to chapter 10, this feast. And Jesus, if you remember back in chapter 7, uh, he went south to Jerusalem for the feast, even though he knew the religious leaders were out to kill him. And so taking his life in his hands, so to speak, he travels south. He goes into Jerusalem, but he travels under the radar. And halfway through the feast, at the halfway point, he gets up, he walks into the temple courtyards, uh, this massive temple complex where there's basically wanted posters for him, essentially, and he begins to teach boldly. And then on the very last day of the feast, he stands up. And you remember that water ceremony where they, they pour the water on? He stands up and he says to the nation of Israel, he says, he who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Like I am the true life giver, the true water giver for the nation of Israel. Well, apparently about that same time, it's still the Feast of Tabernacles setting, that Jesus now walks again into that temple courtyard, that court of the women, where at nighttime these lights would be lit up and, and illuminate the whole city. And he makes his famous statement. And it comes in chapter 8 and in verse 12. And so here it comes. It says, when Jesus uh, spoke to, again to the people, he said, I am the what? I am the light of the world. Uh, in Israel's history, light is an important theme. Uh, God is the light of the nation. You think back with me through the Old Testament. In Genesis 1, first day of creation, God said, let there be light. And there was light, first day of creation. Uh, the nation of Israel traveling through the wilderness, a uh, cloud to lead them by day, pillar of fire by night to light their way. God was their light. And so this theme becomes big in Israel. And so, for example, in Psalm 27, David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? In uh, Psalm 119, the psalmist says, your word, O God, is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. And the prophets, they predict that when Messiah came, that he would be the light of the nations. In fact, they said that in the, nation, in the city of Jerusalem, they would no longer need a sun nor a moon because he would be the light. And so into this historic moment, Jesus steps during the Feast of Tabernacles where they celebrate at night. God is their light, lighting these huge lamps that illumine the whole city. He steps right into that very courtyard underneath these huge towers, and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the source of all that is right and good and true. I've come to dispel the darkness of the human race. And so he says in uh, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, never walk in ignorance, evil, uh, dysfunction, brokenness, uh, 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 kind of uh, destruction, but he will have the light of life. And so this, of course, is a huge claim to be the light of the world. And so the religious leaders, remember, who are out to kill him, they're going to challenge him. And the Pharisees are going to take the lead, this one group of religious leaders. 
And they're going to step up and they're going to challenge him. And basically the challenge is, wait a second, you're testifying to yourself. And in the Jewish court of law, you have to have at least two witnesses. And so your testimony, your legal testimony, is not valid because you're just testifying to yourself. Now, Jesus had already addressed this issue back in John chapter 5. I don't know if you remember there, but Jesus had made this big claim to be equal with God, and then he'd said, listen, I want to put three witnesses on the witness stand. I said, first witness is John the Baptist, who is from the Father. Second witness is my miracles, obviously from God. Third witness is my Father himself. So Jesus has already put his witnesses on the stand back in chapter 5. That was about a year ago. And so now they're complaining again about his, you know, his, his, uh, that his witness is not valid. This time he's going to take a totally different approach. And so in verse 13, he says, The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are appearing as your own witness, like in a courtroom scene. Your testimony is not valid. It's not legitimate. It won't stand. And so Jesus says, you know, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, it's legitimate, it's true, for I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. I know who I am. Uh, But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You don't really have a clue on who I am. Now, you judge by human standards. In other words, you're looking for a certain kind of Messiah. I'm not fitting your criteria But I pass judgment on no one. Back in John 3, we're told that Jesus came not to judge the world, but to save the world. That's what he's saying. Look, you're you're condemning me. I'm not here to condemn anyone. Um, He says, but if I do judge, if I make judgments, my decisions are right, my teaching is right, because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. And this is what Jesus is being saying all through John, that his teaching is not something he's making up. He's just delivering the message from his father. Verse 17, in your olden law, in the Old Testament, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. Like if you're bringing a court case, you have to have two witnesses. And he says, I'm the one who testifies for myself. There's one. My other witness is my father who sent me. There's two. You got your two witnesses. Verse 19, well, whenever Jesus talks about his father, they always get confused. So he said, well, where is your father? Well, you don't know me or my father. That's interesting. A little sidelight here, a little sidebar. I want you to catch this. I want to keep hammering this through the Gospel of John. One thing Jesus says over and over again is that these spiritual leaders, these religious leaders, they don't know God at all. They're the spiritual leaders of the nation, but they don't know God at all. Just because someone is in a position of spiritual leadership doesn't mean they know God, right? And he keeps saying this, that, that being religious is not the same as having a relationship with God. They're two totally different things. And all through the Gospel of John, we see this. So he says, look, you don't, you don't know me or, your fa- or the Father. In fact, often in the Gospel of John, says, uh, Jesus says, if you knew me, you would know the Father. Other times he says, if you knew my Father, you would know me. Because we're a team. To recognize the one is to recognize the other. And this particular case, he says in verse 19, if you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. This is what we call the court of the woman, where these huge towers would be standing during Feast of uh, Tabernacles. Yet, in spite of the fact that here he is making these huge claims and they're out to kill him, it says, yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. And so God has a time schedule for every one of our lives, doesn't he? And, uh, and you're safe until 
you're not safe. And uh, this is not the time for Jesus. Uh, Jesus was the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God needs to die at a certain time of the year. It's in the spring. It's six months from now. It's during Passover. The Lamb of God doesn't die during Feast of Tabernacles. It wasn't his time yet. And so he was safe even though they were out to kill him. Verse 21, so once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look, to, look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now this is actually the second time he said this. He said this earlier in the week, in the middle of the week. And neither time do they understand what he's talking about. I'm leaving. You're going to look for me. You're not going to find me. You're going to die in your sin. Where I go, you can't come. The first time, their guess is maybe he's talking about he's going to take his message to the Gentiles. He's leaving Israel. That's not what he meant. This time, their guess is even more out there. Like maybe he's going to kill himself. Maybe he's going like to commit suicide. Maybe that's what he's talking about. So he says, verse 22, this made the Jews ask, will he, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, listen, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Literally, I am, one of the names of God in the Old Testament. And you will indeed die in your sins. So what Jesus is telling them is what he's been saying all along. I've come from God. I'm the son of the Father. Uh, I'm the one who gives you life. And if you refuse to believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. You're going to be separated from God for all eternity. There's going to be no hope for you. And you won't be able to follow me into the next world, uh, the next life. And uh, so he's giving them this warning. So, of course, they say, well, who are you? You know, he's just said to them that unless you believe I am, like, I am who? And uh, so who are you? And he says, well, just what I've been claiming all along. Of course, he's been claiming to be one with the Father, the equal with God, the Father's Son, and so on, the one sent from God. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable. You can trust him. And what I've heard from him, I'm just telling you. And so they didn't understand what he was telling them about the Father. And so Jesus said, listen, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, literally, that I am the one I claim to be. And that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, at this point in time, I realize you don't get it. You don't realize who I am. You don't realize I've been sent from the Father. But there's going to come a time in the future where it's going to click for you. There's going to come time. And when it's going to click is when I'm lifted up. And, and lifted up is sort of a play on words in John. It, it refers both to his exaltation. We get to see who God really is. But it's also the way he's going to die. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. Remember back in John chapter 3 we saw this where he said to Nic Jesus said to Nicodemus, I'll be lifted up like the snake in the wilderness. This is the way in the Gospel of John he talks about his death being lifted up. Now remember, they don't know that he's going to die. They don't know he's going to be crucified. No one knows that except Jesus, but he's very aware. So he says, I realize that right now you don't get who I am, but there's coming a time when I will be lifted up. And when that time comes, you will realize who I am and that I've been from the Father. And so it's actually a prophetic statement, and this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in about seven and a half months. Remember, we're in the fall. 
You move forward six months, it's the time of Passover. Jesus will be arrested, murdered, and then rise from the dead. He will be with his disciples for 40 days. Then he will return to heaven. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit will come. When the Holy Spirit comes, Peter will get up in the very streets where Jesus is preaching, right in the same temple. And he will give this amazing message about how Jesus is the Messiah, how you killed the wrong guy, you killed the Messiah. And on that day, 3,000 Jewish people will come to know Christ. Their eyes will be open, and they'll realize he was who he claimed to be. And so Jesus is saying here that right now you don't get it, but give me seven and a half months, I will be lifted up, and you will come to realize who I am, and you'll put your faith in me. So uh, in verse 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Of course, this is a, a, a message of the Gospel of John that Jesus, his close relationship with fathers, because his passion in life is to please his father. And then comes a surprise verse. At least it's a surprise to me. It says, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Now, this kind of takes me by surprise because I read this. It feels like no one's buying in. But apparently there were some that were buying in. Yeah, we, we believe. And so to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus kind of meets with them aside afterwards. And he says, listen, if you hold to my teaching, you hold on to it, you follow my teaching, then you're really my disciples. That's kind of the, the mark of a disciple as you follow my teaching. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free in your life. We'll come back and talk more about that later. Well, when he mentions the word free, their mind automatically goes to literal slavery or freedom, literal freedom, uh, kind of phys physical freedom. And he, they said, hey, we are Abraham's descendants. We're Jews, and we've never been slaves of anyone. Now, this is sort of revisionist history, right? Because how do they start off? Slavery in Egypt. That's how the story starts. Right? And so, and ever since then, they've been kind of oppressed or conquered by just about anyone, you know? So ever since then, they were conquered by Assyria, Babylon, Syria, Greece, now Rome. And so they're living a little bit in a fantasy land here. But, um, but that's their perspective. And they said, how can, how can you say that we'll be set free? And so Jesus says, look, I'm talking about spiritual freedom. Uh, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The freedom Jesus is talking about is a freedom to be the person that we are created to be. It's a freedom from, from destruction. It's a freedom from uh, death. It's a freedom from dysfunction. It's a freedom to, to live life the way it's supposed to be lived. And so he says, now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So like in a family, you have kids and you have slaves in that time. And I uh, said, if you're a slave, you're not a permanent member of the family. You can be sold, traded, whatever. If you're a son, of course, you're in the family forever. Now, the Jewish people, they saw themselves as the sons of God. They saw themselves as the children of God simply because they were Abraham's children, because of their, their physical lineage with Abraham. And Jesus is not so fast. You're actually not automatically children of God just because you've been, you're a Jew that you're actually slaves of sin. You need to be set free in order to become like a true son. And so Jesus says in verse uh, 36, so if the son sets you free, now of course talking about himself as the ultimate son, if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. Okay, and so that's the passage. So let's step back. Let's uh, kind of uh, step back, uh, summarize it, put a bow on it, and then talk about our, what we're going to be studying today. 
So it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Jesus walks into the court of women where these huge lights have been lit at night. He walks in, makes this amazing claim, I am the light of the world. Uh, the Jewish leaders begin to give pushback to that, which leads to a long conversation about who he is, who they are, their relationship with God. There's a few in the crowd. There's some at least. He says many, but uh, kind of proportionally probably not so many. But there was many who decide that they want to follow him. So he pulls them aside for a private counseling session to explain to them what does it mean to be a Christ follower and what does it take to be set free and experience true freedom in life. And so in the time that we have today, I want to do a couple things. First of all, uh, I want to give you one big picture principle. You know, some weeks we'll have two or three or five or 10 or 15 or whatever. Um, but this week, just one big picture principle, and then spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking that together. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the Path to Freedom. I want to give you the principle. It's fairly straightforward. In fact, for some of you, you're going you're gonna to write it down. You're going to go, well, duh, you know. Um, but I, I promise you it's, it's worth the price of admission. And it's like this, this is some powerful teaching of Jesus, and it on the surface may seem obvious, but we're gonna, as we unpack it today, you can see there's a lot more than meets the eye. So here's the principle. According to Jesus in this passage, it's following is the path to freedom. The following is the path to freedom. You're going, duh, I know. Uh, but, but just hang with me. The, in other words, according to Jesus, if you want to live life the way it's meant to be lived, if you want to experience all that God has for you, if you want to be set free from your old life so you can grow and expand and become the person you're meant to be, the key is following. The following is the path to freedom. Now, if you stop and think about this, this teaching runs all through the life of Jesus, doesn't it? Like, like watch, the, watch this. Just kind of, I'm going to give you five examples. I could give you many more, but let me give you five examples. Let's think together. The start of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, here's how they start. Peter and James, well, at least in Matthew and Mark, so Peter and, Peter, and, uh, Peter and Andrew, his brother, they're out fishing one day by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, James and John, they're down the, down the road a little bit, also by the sea. They're in their, their, their uh, boats mending their nets. They're all fishermen. Jesus walks along. What does he say to them? Follow me. I will make you fishers. So the very first part of the story starts with these words, follow me. That's how the story starts. Um, a little bit later, he's going to pick up another one of his 12 disciples, a man named Matthew, who's sitting uh, at his tax collector booth, a man far from God. And Jesus walks up to him. What does he say? Follow me. Uh, we fast forward a little bit. Now we're in the middle of the, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, there's a, a young man that comes to Jesus. I call him the wealthy young CEO. And he comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I really want to find out what it takes to be part of the next life, what eternal life. And so what do I need to do? And you remember Jesus has a conversation with him. At the end of that conversation, he says, okay, there's one thing more. You need to sell your possessions, give to the poor, and come and follow me. Now let's fast forward. Now it's about six months before Jesus dies. He's with his men. He's just told them for the very first time. They're traveling south to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested, mocked, persecuted, uh, killed, and then he's going to rise from the dead. And they're shocked over that. And he says, listen, if you, want to, if, if you want to come after me, you want to be my disciple, you need to pick up your cross, die daily, and follow me. Fifth example. In the book of John, the very last chapter in John, which we'll get to in about three or four years, 
in, in chapter 21, uh, it's, it's the last scene in the Gospel of John. Now, remember how the, the, the story begins, the, the story of the disciples in the other Gospels. You know, Peter's at the shore, follow me. Now, it's the very end of his story in the Gospel of John. And it's Jesus has risen from the dead. They've had breakfast together. Jesus had breakfast with his men. After breakfast, Jesus and Peter go for a walk. They're, uh, uh, Jesus is telling Peter about how he's about talking about his future, how he's going to die for Christ. And Peter's not so big, uh, big on that idea. And John's standing there. And he says, well, well, what's his story? And Jesus says, well, don't worry about his story. That's his story. Just worry about your own story. As for you, follow me. So from beginning to end, we see this message of Jesus. He calls us to follow him. Here's what I'm saying today. That following is the path to freedom. So they want to talk about what does it look like to follow. Now in this passage that we come to today is some of the best teaching in all the Bible on what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to follow. And Jesus actually says this twice in this passage. So if you look at John 8, we're going to look quickly at these two passages. 8.12 is the first one. In verse 12, Jesus speaks again to the people, and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever, what? Follows me. Underline that. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but you're going to have the light of life. You want to experience life? You want to know what's good and right and true? You want to know the meaning of life, the purpose of life? You want to experience life to the full? The key is follow me, right? Now, later on in the passage, at the end of the passage we looked at today, Jesus is going to say the same thing, just use different words. In verse 31, you've got these Jews who believe in him at the end of his teaching. And Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, and we'll talk more about what this means, but for now, hold to it, stick with it, you follow my teaching. He says, if you follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, that's the mark of a true Christ follower, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you, what? free. So how do you get set free? By following his teaching, right? And so some of the best teaching in all the Bible about what it means to be a Christ follower, and the message is following is the path to freedom. So I want to spend some time unpacking that. And the way I want to get at it is by looking at these three verses, chapter 8, verse 30, 31, and 32, and walk these through, because there's some of the most profound teaching in all the Bible about the path to freedom, the path to life, and, and what it means to be a Christ follower. So let's just walk them through. So in verse 30, it says, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. So let's set this up. It's the Feast of pa uh, Tabernacles, which is a seven-day feast. In many ways, it's kind of like a summer camp. Like, I, I don't know if you had any of you kind of growing up went to a Christian camp or as an adult, you know, Hume Lake or something like that. But you know how you, you, you kind of you get away, you, you put aside your normal routine, you focus on God for a week. And, and if you've ever done that, this is kind of like that. I mean, they, all, they go to Jerusalem, they hang out, they, they camp out in these little huts, and, and every day there's special uh, activities you do, you go down to the water ceremony, you sing special worship songs, you, you walk up, you do the light thing at night, you got special things going on. It's kind of like a week at camp. And just like at camp, when you're in a week at camp, there's usually what they call decision night. It's usually the night next to the last night of camp. And this is the night where you've been hearing special speakers all week long, you've been hearing great teaching all week long, and now it's time to decide, do you want to follow Christ or not? And so you have decision night. 
And at decision night, what typically happens is that someone gives an invitation, you raise your hand if you want to follow Christ, and then afterwards you come forward uh, at a meeting, maybe you go down afterwards to a prayer corner or something, and uh, they explain what it means to follow Christ and do you want to follow. Are you, are you with me with this? Okay, this is kind of camp week at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's kind of camp week. Except this week, special speaker is Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's been teaching all week from midweek on, hey, if you come to me, if you believe in me, uh, rivers of living water come out. Uh, I am the light of the world. You follow me, light of life. And now it's decision time. And so he's done his teaching. And in verse 30, it says that even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. And so he says, awesome. Uh, let's go over to the corner over here, the prayer room corner, and let me share with you, do some personal counseling of what it means to be a Christ follower. So all the people come forward. We sing just as I am, all seven verses. People come forward, and then we go over into the prayer corner where Jesus will be the counselor of what it means to be a Christ follower. Are you with me? You have to set up. Okay, so now, so what Jesus is about to say is very important. It's, he's going to tell them what does it mean to be a Christ follower. So he says in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So why don't you catch, Jesus is defining what it means to be a disciple. What's it mean to be a real disciple? If you hold my teaching, then you're really my disciples. You know, if you don't, you're, you're not really my disciple. But if you hold my teaching, you're really my disciple. Let's focus on a couple words. First word is the word disciple. You know, sometimes in Christian circles, we have this idea that that uh, like there are like normal Christians, and then there are disciples. Right? Like disciples are like upper class Christians. They're like the the Navy SEALs of the Christian world. You know, so we use this word like like Have you been discipled yet? No, I haven't been discipled. We'll come back after you have been. You know, it's like like we got just normal run of the mill Christians, and then we have disciples. And we often look at this kind of a two tier approach to Christianity. This is not the New Testament way they're looking at it. In the New Testament, the word disciple is just the normal word for someone who follows the teaching of someone else. For example, John the Baptist had his disciples. Uh, the Pharisees had their disciples. To be a disciple just means you buy into the teaching of someone and you, you follow that teaching. You believe in their philosophy of life and you follow. And so, and so uh, this is the normal word for a Christian in the New Testament. Like if you read through the the Gospels, you read through the book of Acts, whenever it talks about Christians, the normal word is disciple. Are you with me in this? It's a, it's a little Greek word that's called mathetes, which doesn't really matter. just like to prove from time to time that I went to school. So anyway, now I have some credibility. Here we go. So, uh, so anyway, Jesus is defining what it means to be a Christian. Right? This one I want you to catch. He says, to those who believed in him, let's look at it again. To those who believed in him, he said, if you hold my teaching, you're really my disciples. You're really a follower of mine. You're really a Christian, what I call a Christ follower. That's what you, you are. Okay. The second word I want you to look at is the word hold to. So he's defining what does it mean to be a, a Christ follower. And he says, if you hold to my teaching. Now, this is a little Greek word. That it's called meno. And it, and it means, it can be translated a variety of ways, but you'll get the idea. That can be translated remain, if you remain in my teaching, if you abide in my teaching, if you stay with my teaching, if you stick to my teaching, if you follow my teaching. These would all be the legitimate same deal. The idea is if, if you kind of stick with it, 
If you, you've, you've listened to me, you've bought into me, now are you going to follow my teaching? This is the same little Greek word that is used in John chapter 15, in that famous passage where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the, the branches. If you remain in me, if you stick with me, if you abide in me, if you keep following me, if you stay connected with me, then you will bear much fruit. And so Jesus is here defining what does it mean to be a Christian. And what he says is, if you hold to my teaching, if you stick with my teaching, if you follow my teaching, then you're really a Christ follower. The way I like to say it is the mark of a Christ follower is that they follow. Now, I want you to catch this, how different this is than in our country we often think of what a Christian is. In our country, we'll often say, well, that person's a Christian, but they're a hypocrite. What do we mean by that? Well, they're a Christian, but they're not following. Well, you see how, like in Jesus' terminology, this makes no sense. The definition of a Christian is someone who follows. The, uh, the concept of a Christian who doesn't follow doesn't even make any sense biblically. You see? It doesn't even make any sense. And so Jesus is defining what does it mean to be a Christ follower. It means we follow. No, does it mean we follow perfectly? Of course not. Look at the disciples. They stumble, they fall, but they always get up, don't they? And they start following again. They don't stay down. They don't say, well, I'm just not following that. Right? Well, I, I follow these things of Jesus, but I don't follow those things of Jesus. Right? It's like, it's not that. It's like, sure, we all fail. We all, we all stumble. We get up and we start following again. That's what followers do. But this idea that you can believe in Jesus but not follow Jesus is crazy. It's not a New Testament idea. And that's what Jesus is saying. Let's look what he says again. If you hold to my teaching, or if you follow my teaching, you are really my disciples. Of course, if you don't, then what? You're not. And in fact, we have a great example of this earlier in John. Uh, keep your fingers here. Go back to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, it's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And then the next day, Jesus does his bread of life sermon. Now, after he feeds the 5,000, they're all loving him. They want to make him king. The next day, he does his bread of life sermon. says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he grosses them out. Remember that? And then, and then it's interesting because what we're told is that many of his disciples stopped following him. They were disciples because they were following but now they stop being his disciples because they stop following. So look what, look what happened, 660. On hearing this teaching, many of his disciples, catch that, many of his disciples, mathetes, same word, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples, there it is again, were grumbling, he said, well, does this offend you? Skip down to verse 66. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer followed him. You see? Like they were once, they were disciples. And so this is what Jesus is saying is John chapter 8. He, he takes these people who come forward in the meeting. He says, okay, you believe in me. Let's go talk about what that means. If you continue in my teaching, if you hold on to my teaching, if you stick with my teaching, if you follow my teaching, then that's, what, that's the mark of a true follower, true disciple. That's what it means to follow. He says, now, if you do that, Let's, let's pretend we're listening in this counseling session. He says, if you do that, if you listen to my teaching, if you follow my teaching, 
it's going to set off a chain reaction. Let's see what the chain reaction is. Chapter 8 and verse 32. Let's, let's, start, let's pick it up the middle of 31. If you hold my teaching, you're really my disciples. And then, here goes the chain reaction, and then you will know what? The truth. And then the truth will, in turn, set you free. So it's a three-step process. You believe in me so, and so that you follow my teaching. As you follow my teaching, you're following my teaching, you come to a place, you know the truth. And then the truth sets you free. Do you see the process here? You follow the teaching. It leads to what I like to call aha moments in our life where we suddenly like, oh, I get it. Have you ever had one of those? <laughs> like, duh. No, not duh moments. Aha. Sometimes aha moments are duh moments, aren't they? We have, okay, we'll call them a duh moment. So we have a duh moment, an aha moment. And then, because we can now clearly see the truth, what happens? We move into a whole realm of freedom, don't we? Now, think of how this happens. Think of uh, this happens, a husband's taking his marriage for granted. And all of a sudden, at some point, something triggers. If I don't change, I'm going to lose my wife. And it's an aha moment. The truth breaks in. And as the truth breaks in, everything rearranges in his life. I got I to gotta do this differently. And what happens? It leads the marriage to a new freedom, doesn't it? You're raising your kids. You have a certain idea. You, you've been raised that, hey, if your kid shows you any disrespect at all or whatever, you just wail on them. Okay? And, and, and it's good enough for you, so it's good enough for them. And then someone comes along and says, you know what? These are people too, and, and you need to learn to understand them. And we need to get in their world. If you really want to influence them, you got to come along. And, and it's like a light goes on. And all of a sudden, you move into a new realm of freedom with your, your parenting, right? It happens in finances. It happens in our sexuality. It happens in, uh, uh, in following Jesus in a million areas. That as we're following him, a light goes on. This happens to you all the time here in services, doesn't it? In teaching, and a light goes on, and I get it. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, why couldn't I see that before? And now that I see it, I can move into this new freedom. See, this is how spiritual truth works. As we follow, Jesus says, as we follow, lights go on, and as lights go on, we move into freedom. That's how it works. Now, here's the sad part, though. For a lot of people in their life, they come to a place where at some level they believe in Jesus. They go forward and talk to Jesus. He says, if you continue, lights will go on and you'll set free, but they don't continue. They go back to their life, and they live their life the same old way, same old priorities, same old way of doing relationships, same old way of doing sexuality, same old way of doing finances, same old way of, of dealing with their marriage. And what happens is that they are, quote, believers in their minds. In their minds, I'm a believer. I went forward. I raised my hand. But they have never moved into the freedom God has for them because they have not continued in the word. And they can't figure it out. And that's why this world is like it is. We've got tons of people out there who name the name of Jesus. But I run into people all the time and say to me, I met someone from your church. It was the first 
Christian I've ever really met. Everyone else in my life has been like hypocrites. I've never, why is that? Because we've created a culture where we think it's possible to believe in Jesus, but not to follow Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus, but you don't follow Jesus, your life doesn't change. There is no freedom. And all of a sudden we end up in bondage. Does this make sense? You see, and so what we want to be, we want to be a church of Christ followers. Because the following leads to freedom. Now, let's move on. Next thing I'd say is that here's what I've observed in my life. See if this rings true in your life. That often the teaching of Jesus. Remember what he said. If you continue in my words, you'll know the truth, the truth of the faith. But here's what, here's what I found. Often the teaching of Jesus does not feel freeing to me on the surface. The teaching of Jesus often seems restrictive on the surface. I know it's church, but can we be honest for about 10 minutes? Like, let me give you some examples. I'm going to give you some examples. And you tell me it feels freeing, like, woohoo, Or that feels like, not so sure, a little restrictive. All right? I'm going to give you five examples. <laughs> All right. You're married to someone. They have an affair. They decide to stick with the person they have the affair with. And not only do they have the affair, because they're not bad enough, but now they divorce you. And in court, they're lying like crazy to get custody of your kids. They're ruining your credit. They're ruining your reputation. You, and, and some of you have gone through this. One of the most frustrating experiences in life. Now, I, I know it's church. Let's just be honest. Doesn't everything within you just want to take them out? That's me. I'm like, where's Rambo? You know, it's like, uh, better yet, how do I become Rambo? It's like, it's a movie, just want to take them out. And everything within me, I mean, this happens just on the freeway when someone cuts you off, right? I just cut you off. He's like, oh, God bless you. Have a great day. No. You know, it's like, that's why God made horns, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so here comes Jesus. Now, let's say that you're the person who's been ripped off and lied about in court and everything, and Jesus comes along and he says, hey, here's the path of freedom. I want you to forgive that person the way I forgave you. Just let it go. Okay, how many of you that sounds really freeing to you? i like, where's a good Old Testament passage, you know? Like, dash their head against the stone. That feels like freedom to me. Right? Where's the sword when you need one? Right? Let's take another area of teaching, sex. Jesus comes and he says, okay, sex is for a man and a woman committed lifelong relationship. We call that marriage. Any other sex, extramarital, premarital, outside, whatever. Yeah, okay, that, that's not off, it's off limits. In fact, uh, he says to this guy, he says, if you look at a woman and you just even want to have sex with her, that, that that's off limits. Now, guys, honestly, does that sound freeing to you? Like your, your wives are going, yeah, it sounds freeing. What's wrong with that? <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, that doesn't sound freeing. And there's so many people. We have sex with one person? Are you kidding me? With so many available? Does that sound freeing? You know, on the surface, I think if we're honest, it's like there's lots of times in our lives that didn't feel free, so free. Um, 
Let's take another example. Jesus says, let's talk about service. Jesus says, okay, here's what we do. If you want to be great in my kingdom, I want you to learn how to serve. I want you to be like the least. I want you to put others first in your life. Does that feel like freedom to you? I tell you what it freedom to me. Like, like freedom to me is like being at the Hilton and getting room service. That feels like freedom, having people wait on me. Like that feels like freedom. This is kind of laying down my right, not so much. Um, how about money? Jesus says, okay, when you become a follower of mine, everything you have, including your finances, becomes mine. So how you give, how you spend, or whatever, I want to teach you how to do that. I want you to spend under my leadership. And, and by the way, I want to be very generous towards kingdom, kingdom issues and the poor, and I, I want you to use your money to bless other people. And, uh, and so he says, I want you to lay up treasures, not on earth, but lay them up in heaven. And because no one can serve two masters, then you can't love God and mammon. And, and so I want you to, to give a lot of your money away. Does that sound freeing to you? Like, what sounds freeing to me is being spend whatever I want anytime I want. That sounds freeing to me. Let's give one more. Uh, Jesus comes, he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to die to yourself. You've got to figure out what yourself is and then die to it. Uh, does that sound like freedom? I'll tell you what, wait till the next time you want to go right and God wants you to go left. Tell me how freeing that feels. You think? And so here's what I want you to catch. That often, following the teaching of Jesus doesn't feel free on the surface. That often, it feels like slavery. Often, it feels like restrictive. And so often, it's a step of faith. Often, it's a step of faith. Because here's what happens. When we follow, all of a sudden, at a certain point, lights go on and everything changes. So as I follow in this area of forgiveness, and I say, okay, I don't want to forgive them. I want to take them out. But because you told me, I'm going to let it go. What I began to experience at some point for the first time in my life, freedom. Freedom from revenge, freedom from hatred, freedom from bitterness, and freedom from my past. I'm no longer tied to this person who controls my past, controls me because of what happened in the past. And I experienced true freedom. And, and as I follow what Jesus teaches about sexuality, I find that there's a new strength, a new power, a new purity, a new identity, a new capacity to love people, to no longer treat people like objects, but to treat them like people, and a new power to connect within the bonds of marriage. There's a new freedom that comes, but only as I follow. And when it comes to service, I find that as I put others first and I begin to seek God's kingdom, I begin to serve, I, I discover a new sense of identity and purpose in life like I've never had before. And as I begin to give, the more I give to his kingdom, the more I give to the poor, the more I give to what he wants, I experience a freedom from myself that I've never experienced. And I begin to experience a freedom from materialism. For the first time in my life, I'd be able to measure things well and know what's really important in life. And a new perspective comes. And as I die to myself in those areas that are hardest to die, I find that I rise to a new life and become a new person, a person that's much more like Jesus than the old person with a new freedom. And what I find is exactly what Jesus said, that if I hold on to his teaching and I follow his teaching, at a certain point the light comes on and I'm set free. It's almost like a, a addiction. You know, like you think of a person has an addiction, like a, let's say a drug or an alcohol addiction. To the, to, the, to the addict, what seems free in life 
is to use as much as possible whatever I want. Until you come to a point in your life, your life is destroyed and you realize it has ruined your life. It has stolen everything that matters to you. And all of a sudden, as you seek God and as you get free from that addiction, what happens every day that you're, you're sober, more freedom comes back in your life. And you, begin to, and you begin to see straight and you're like, how could I have ever thought I was free before when it was freedom was to use whatever I want? I'm finally free. But that insight doesn't come until you leave it. <clears throat> and it's the same way with sin in our life. Yes, it seems free to do this. Freedom to us as human beings, it feels like this. Freedom is the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's what it feels like naturally. Can I tell you, true freedom is the freedom to be the person you were designed to be. And when you are there, you look back on the old and you say, I cannot believe I used to think that freedom was sleeping around every night with a different person. I can't believe that I used to think freedom was buying everything I want that possessions would make me happen. I can't believe that freedom, I used to think that freedom was getting back at everyone that hurt me and never letting anyone get away with anything. You hurt me, I'll hurt you twice. And we begin to look back at the past and we say, I can't even believe I thought that was freedom. It's like I was in a daze. I was under the influence. What was wrong with me? I'll tell you what was wrong with me. You were a slave to sin, and now you've followed, and the truth has come and set you free, and for the first time, you're becoming the person you were made to be. And see what happens. The longer we follow, the more clear this gets to us. And that's why, like there in your note sheet, in Psalm 119, you have a couple great statements by the psalmist. I love these passages where the psalmist says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. I, I love this. You know, when we first come to Christ, or sometimes as earlier, uh, newer Christians, we're kind of slow to follow, aren't we? It's like, uh, we're, we're, here's, the, here's the path of his commands, and God says, you need to forgive this person. And we're like, oh, really? We, and we don't run in the path. Like, okay. We're like, oh, are you serious? All right, we, we kind of drag our feet in the path. We're kind of like, okay. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, Christian. <laughs> yes, I'm forgiving. Whatever. God says if I don't forgive, that he won't forgive me. Okay. Like, we're like, yeah, okay, I'm supposed to be sexually pure, whatever. Well, maybe not. <laughs> well, okay. I guess. Well, I'm not so sure. Okay. But what happens, the further we get down the path of obedience, what happens at a certain point, lights start to go on. And we start to see the reward. What happens to freedom? At a certain point, we go, yeah, it's not so bad. And, we, and so instead of dragging our feet, now we're just kind of walking in the path. Kind of slow, but we're just walking. And the more we walk, the more freedom that comes in our life. And there comes a point like we start jogging. We're jogging in, in the path of his commands. Because it's like, this is pretty good. I'm, I'm finding a rhythm here. I'm finding some freedom. And I'll tell you, as we grow, we come to a place where we start to run in the path. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? I can't believe I was so dim-witted back here. 
I can't believe I was so blind. What was I thinking? This is lame. That's a path of death. That's a path of destruction. That's a path of dysfunction. And now it's like, you sh- let's go, God. Let's just run. Let's run in the path. Where do you want me to go? And we begin to run. Why? Because he set our heart free. You see? And this is the path of Christian maturity. It's a path of increased freedom. This is the path that Jesus knew. He's not blowing smoke. He's telling you the secret of his life. This is the, the freedom that he lives in. This is the freedom he invites us to. Look at the next passage. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. And so here Jesus comes to us today, and he makes these two incredible statements. He says, I am the light of the world. I'm the source of all that's good and right and true. If you follow me, you will have the light of life. You'll no longer be in the dark. You'll no longer live your life in the dark. You follow me. You follow me. I will lead you out of this dark place. I will lead you out of this cave. I promise you, as sure as we're standing here, you follow me. I will lead you to the light. And he says, and by the way, you're stuck in this prison here. And if you follow me and you hold on to my teaching, I will set you free. And he makes these incredible two promises. Now, the only question for us is the question we have to ask every week in the Gospel of John. The question is this, do we believe him? Do you believe that he is the light of the world? And then if you follow, he will lead you to life. Do you believe that he's come to set you free? And if you follow, you will experience freedom. Do you believe that? And the only way to know whether you believe that is whether you follow him when it makes no sense and when it's most difficult. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be a church of uh, passionate Christ followers. We want to experience the freedom you came to give us, died to give us, Lord. And it's hard for us. It's hard because the reality is that sometimes your path doesn't look like it leads to freedom. And it looks like it leads to restriction and slavery. And so it's hard for us. And yet, Lord, we pray for grace. We pray that you give us wisdom, the wisdom to follow, the, the ability to trust you. That as you trust you, lights would go on. As we trust you, we would find freedom. And we would be able to run with you into our future, both as individual Christ followers and as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.